Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's lovely to see you at church this afternoon. Um, I'm James. I'm originally from Wigan. Is there anybody else here from Wigan? No? Oh, if you do find anyone in Newcastle from Wigan, do let me know. Point them to me. Kind of like heart of my own heart kind of thing, my kinfolk. They normally sit in the corners of the rooms. So that's where my eyes were scanning to. But it's lovely to meet you. I'm married to Lucy, and we've got two children, Joshua and Flory. But on behalf of the team here at St. Thomas's, if you're a guest or visitor, it's your first time with us, a huge welcome to you. Welcome to church. We would love to get to know you. One of the ways that we can say hello is with the new welcome cards that we've got on the chairs. So do fill that in and one of the team will be able to say hi and hopefully welcome you into this church family, give you a good taste of what it might be like to be part of this church, St. Thomas's, which we love. Um, But this is what we're doing um, this afternoon. We're in the second part of our series on five lives, five lives, five lies that are ruining your life. And with the hope of this series is that we're contrasting the truth that we are God's people, holy and blameless, as it'll say in the verses that we read, or it did last week, but contrasting it with the truth of, or the difficulty of the lies in which we experience every day as followers of Jesus in the world. And how can the word of God inform us Um, to live life to the full as followers of Jesus, holding that tension of what we read in the Bible, yet what we might experience day to day. And do consider using the scripture journals. Um, Maybe you pick one of these up on on your way in or you um, handed one last week. Bring them with you because we're going to be using these to help us understand the word of God, to scribble our thoughts down, to capture things God's saying to us that we might remember. So um, if you've not got one of these, you can pick one up on the way out the back. We'd love Um, you to get one. Um, I'm going to read from this. We're at Ephesians 1 verses 15 to 23. So I'm going to read now. It's titled Thanksgiving and Prayer. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. When we read the word of God, sometimes we finish by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and a response is, thanks be to God. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our series, Five Lies That Are Ruining Your Life. And the first lie, which Brogan kicked us off with last week, and if you have not listened to it, you can catch it on our YouTube channel. It was exceptional and a great start to our series. He talked about this lie we sometimes believe over ourselves that we are not wanted. Yet in Christ, we are chosen. 
That's what we read in Ephesians 1 as Brogan unpacked that first part of chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians. Talking about verse 3, that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, that we are chosen. Verse 5, that we are chosen in love. And he brought about our adoption in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, 14, and we are given the seal of the Holy Spirit, who is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. With all of that in mind, that wonderful truth that we are chosen, adopted and sealed in Christ, why is it that we sometimes feel helpless, hopeless? With all that, that God has done this mighty work of grace in choosing us, in love, why is it that we sometimes feel hopeless? All of this Christian truth, and it might well be true. In fact, we believe it is true. But what difference does the gospel actually make to the darkness out there in the world? As we see big corporations or institutions that are making, I don't know, reading about Facebook this week in the news and the whistleblowers who are saying it's all about profits before people. How do we as the church, as we hold this gospel truth, how does that connect with what's going on in the world? How does it actually make a difference? Or climate change, I read in the BBC just before coming here today. The headline today is COP26 is our last biggest hope. And the G20 nations are making a final push for a deal. Is that true? Is this our last hope? If you're optimistic, you might believe that, but some of us go, is it really, can, can, this, can, can the gospel really make a difference? More profoundly, not just the world out there and the darkness that we see in the world, what difference does the gospel make or hope in Jesus Christ make to the darkness that I sometimes find in me? You know, I'm so inconsistent with my faith sometimes. And these things happen because I'm sinful. Matthew Porter who is a vicar of a church that a lot of us came up from York from. I didn't, I came up from Sheffield, but a lot of the team will know. He defines sin as, sin stands for selfishness, immorality, and neglect. The things that we don't do that we should do, or the things that we do that we shouldn't do. Or the future, the darkness that's ahead of me. Even death, these verses speak of a hope that Christ overcame. Even the grave, the power of the resurrection, which is for us who believe in him. What difference does Jesus make? The second lie that we're going to look at today is that we sometimes feel hopeless. But I hope you've seen in holding these words in Ephesians, in Christ, we are empowered. We sometimes feel hopeless, but in Christ, we are empowered because of who he is, what he does and how he does it. And if we truly knew who he was, what he does and how he does it, we wouldn't live hopeless lives. Instead, as we're going to see, we will live life more fully because of the hope and power of Christ. And if that's true, then what is it that we need to be praying for as a church, as followers of Jesus? What is the most urgent need of the church? What do we need to pray for? What do we always need to pray for? Well, Paul gives us three things in our verses in Ephesians, and they're going to act as our structure for the talk this evening. Verse 17, verse 18, and verse 19. Three prayers of Paul for the church. Pray that we would know him better. Pray that we would know the hope to which we've been called. And a prayer that we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Second lie, you're hopeless in Christ. 
we're empowered. So what does the first thing, the first prayer, what does the Ephesian church need more than anything else? It needs to know God better. So if you've got a pen and a scripture journal, you might want to just bracket this first prayer as I read it out out loud. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. A wonderful prayer. Amen indeed. And it reads perfectly fine until the penny drops. Paul's writing to Christians here. Surely this would make more sense if he was writing to the rulers or authorities in the city who didn't know Jesus. The pagan worshippers at the temple of Artemis, something that we'll look at later when we talk about that final prayer of Paul for power, to know his power. But Paul's writing to Christians here. What a strange thing to pray for them that they would know God better. Is this prayer of Paul's necessary because they are that clueless? Is it necessary for us by extension because sometimes we're that clueless? Well, no. We're, not told, we're told actually in the book of Ephesians that these followers of Jesus, they're making good progress in their new faith. This letter to the Ephesians, it opens in verse 1 to the holy, the faithful people in Ephesus, holy and blameless in Christ Jesus. They already know God and they have the classic hallmarks of disciples of Jesus. Look with me at verse 15 and get your pen out again. I want you to underline um, in a moment. I'll tell you what's underline. Let me read verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Underline faith in Jesus and love for all God's people. Two classic signs of maturing disciples in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus producing a love for one another. Practical Christian living. Brogan touched on this in more detail last week. There are a family of people in Ephesus. Not very large, small as they may be at the time of receiving this letter, but they are living in light of their adoption in Christ. Not earning their salvation, but an outworking of their adoption. Faith in Jesus first, working its way out in love for all God's people. You think Paul would be satisfied with that? No, he spurs them on all the more to pray to know God better. What does the Ephesian church need more than anything else It needs to know God better. So what does Paul want them to know? More importantly, who does Paul want them to know? Someone who is our father, our glorious father. You might just want to circle that one. We're going to linger on there in a moment. But someone who is our father, who can do something about the things that we face. When we pray, it's worth remembering whom we are speaking to. He isn't reluctant to listen to us. He cares about us. He loves us and he wants to hear us speak to him. Remember last week in verse five, in love, God predestined us for adoption according to his pleasure and his will. Now, a lot of us have the experience of talking with our own parents and have that experience of talking to someone who just wants to talk to us. For example, if I was to ring my mum and you challenged me to talk to her about a Rubik's Cube, I wager that I could probably, if she's listening, hi mum, I wager I could probably keep her on the phone for about five minutes before she cottons on, maybe even longer until I give the game away. I'm just trying to keep her talking to me because she's so interested in, in me as her son. 
But actually with the word father, when I first became a Christian, this word for me, I struggled with it at first. It was just a loaded term for me. I don't know my biological father, but I have a great dad who raised me and who loved me. I was just, this word for me was just, it was a little bit messy in my head and in my heart. Um, when it came to the word father, I don't know if, that, if you can relate to that at all. I knew that God was a father in my head. I knew the Lord's prayer, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I knew about the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. It was there in my head, but maybe not so solid in my heart. I don't know if you can relate to that kind of experience at all. J.I. Packer in his book about knowing God says this, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. Interest in theology and knowledge about God, a capacity to think clearly and to talk well on Christian things is not the same as knowing him. Really knowing him affects our energy, our thought life, our boldness, even our contentment to know things so deeply that it might as well be written into our DNA. And this connection between head and heart, I wonder, I just found it so interesting as I read a little bit more of this letter to the Ephesians that in verse 18, Paul goes on to pray that I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And the role of the heart in the Bible here isn't just as we might see it as this organ, but the heart is this image, as one commentator put it, as the seat of physical, spiritual and the mental life of a person. The deep place where we don't just recall truths, but we process them and make decisions by them. So Paul here is not just talking about an intellectual knowledge, an ethereal knowledge, like an assent to, um, or he's also not talking about something that's just familiar or a particular truth. He is talking about that deep-seated, heartfelt belief, the kind of knowledge that shapes my conscious decision making, but also my unconscious decision making. An example to explain all of which I've just said. In the bigger decisions of life, like moving to Newcastle, or if you're a student choosing to study or to work, or the kind of career you want to progress in as a person, making those big decisions about life in the context of knowing that I'm loved by a father who has chosen me, adopted me, and sealed me with his Holy Spirit. Making those big decisions that know there is a God out there who is in control, bringing all things to unity in himself, working out good for those whom which he loves. Having that confidence and assurance of a father, but also in the quick fire moments as well, where we're maybe under pressure at work or receiving criticism. Sometimes we might snap back quickly or feel this need to prove ourselves as right all the time. Maybe I sometimes fall into this decision making where do I really know this or am I acting as someone who needs to justify myself to you? But actually, even in my unconscious decision making, do I know really deep down in my heart of hearts that I'm a son and daughter loved by a father? When Paul is talking about the knowledge here in Ephesians, he isn't just praying for the Bible study leaders in our church, our small group leaders. He's not even just praying for our preachers who get, I don't know, top marks in theological exams. That's not what he's talking about when he's talking about a knowledge. He's talking about a knowledge of a person, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. And most of all, to have this kind of knowledge, to know God better, it takes a powerful work of God, which is why Paul prays for a spirit of wisdom 
and revelation to know him better. So church, all of us, myself included here, are you satisfied with how well you know God? As a church, do we know him as well as we should? Do you know, if we had all the gold in the world, would we need more? No, we've got it all already. But if we already know someone, is it possible to know them more? Of course it is. Of course it is. The most important thing as a church we can be praying is, Lord, we want to know you better as our glorious Father. Again, if you've not already circled those words, they are so important. Give us your spirit, O Lord, a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better. Knowledge of the God who rules all of history and has blessed us richly in Christ Jesus. So what else does the Ephesian church need more than anything else? It needs to know the hope to which we have been called. Verse 18, look at this with me. And again, you might just want to bracket this second prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Christians have a hope, not a mere optimism, but an anticipation of what is certainly coming. The idea of this future hope is that it's not something we wait for idly, but there is something about it that springs us into action as Christians. This hope mobilizes the Christian life. Ironically, throughout history, it's Christians who did the most, Christians who did most for this present age are the ones who thought most regularly about the age to come. Wilson Carlyle of the Church Army, my friend Mark used to talk to me about Wilson Carlyle all the time. Such a heart for the poor, raised up an army evangelists in the nation. But it was because he contemplated the future glory, the future redemption in which God was calling us to. William Booth of the Salvation Army, exactly the same, motivated to care for the poor, not just because it is a good thing to do, but because of his conviction of the hope and what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. It's because of that future glory which motivated them to such compassionate Christian living in the present. Even I was reading this week about St. Aidan, the so-called Apostle to Northumbria. He set up that monastery in Lindisfarne, not too far away from here, because of his motivation for what he, he saw Christ do on the cross for us. He would walk the highways and byways of this land, sharing Jesus with whoever he could, setting up a, a centre of mission and ministry up here in the northeast of England. He was given horses in order to get further across the land and he would just regularly give them away. He wanted to be with the people, to see their struggle, to love them, to hear them, to bless them and do good, motivated by his conviction of what Christ had done on the cross and that future glory, that future hope that awaited us. It's precisely because of their understanding of the Lord's return that they were mobilised to love. This understanding of hope allows us to live life to its fullest now, not just to wait passively or not just to wait and hoard things, but to be generous with life in the name of Christ Jesus, with a greater sense of identity and purpose to live out that identity of sonship that we've received as sons and daughters of God, and a greater purpose to see his kingdom advancing here on earth, because he is head over all things. He is bringing about unity, as we've read in Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 10, unifying all things under him. Knowledge of our hope, our inheritance. This word hope gives us a confidence, an assurance 
a buoyancy, like we're anchored to something in waves that are trying to crash over us. But we're anchored to something, unshakable, and yet it's a springboard in which we can go out and love people. That's our inheritance. What about his inheritance, though? Look with me, verse 18, the second part of those verses. It talks about his inheritance. You might want to circle these words again. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So we've been reminded of our inheritance, yes, and the hope in which we've been called. But what is the Bible telling us is God's inheritance? Well, we're being told here what God considers his most valuable possession in all of creation. His inheritance is the saints. And when I say someone is a saint, say I say, Lucy, my wife is a saint, in which she is, you'd think, oh, she's, she must be amazing. She must be blameless. She must be perfect. Well, she is those things to a degree, but that's not really what the word, <laughs> to a degree. Um, to, it is to a degree. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, as wonderful as she is, the word saints here it doesn't mean being saintly. It means all of God's people. It means the church. It means all of us, all believers. We are God's prize. We're his treasure. We are God's inheritance. And I know why he would describe me in those terms, but sometimes I wonder why he would describe you in those terms. That was a bad joke. Never mind, we'll move on. <laughs> but the, the, the truth here of those verses in Ephesians is that he wants you. He chose you. Out of all of creation, he could have made anything. He could have made the Mona Lisa his inheritance or the jewel of India or something like that. But he chose you. You're his greatest prize. And the more we learn about ourselves, the more surprising that is. Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrated his own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. I am faithless. He is faithful. At times, I feel unwanted. These things happen to me, but in Ephesians, I remember that I am chosen. And there are times when I feel hopeless, when I question what is the difference this gospel can make. And then I hold these words in Ephesians and I remember that in Christ, I'm treasured. That I have a hope in which I've been called to. These words empower us. Finally, what does the Ephesian church need more than anything else? It needs to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Verse 19, again, you might want to just bracket that one off. This is our final point. And this prayer is probably the most simple to understand conceptually, God's power. Yet I think it's the hardest to deeply know in our hearts that God is powerful beyond measure, omnipotent. He's sovereign. Verse 10, all things under him And he is bringing unity to all things. Or in our verses today, verses 21 to 22, Jesus has been seated far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name. God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. God is active and the most powerful of all the forces in the world. Active, verse 19, Towards us who believe. Active, verse 22, for the church. And it can be hard to believe this at times when it is invisible. Or we don't feel particularly powerful as a church, sort of a sideline in society, a shadow of our former glory. Not that political power is the one to attain, but we feel this way sometimes. It can be hard to believe when it is one of the most explicitly denied in the world around us. Powerful God? Are you sure? 
whatever. And yet, what does the Ephesian church need more than anything else? It needs to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And I wouldn't be surprised if we as a church needed to hear this one the most as well. The further we get through this letter, the more it seems that they were overwhelmed, the church that is this people of God gathered in Ephesus, overwhelmed by the powers of the day. Ephesus was the city of Artemis. It's what it was known for and famous for in the world at the time of receiving this letter. There was this huge temple to Artemis that that dominated the skyline, as we know from archaeology of the time. Um, It dominated the city. It was their religion. It wasn't just their religion. It was their economy. It was their culture. It was their politics. And generations of idolatry meant that when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was first preached there by the Apostle Paul, it collided head on with the powers of darkness. You can read what happened in Acts 19. It's a fascinating story. This darkness was evident in a city like Ephesus with its industry of idols and openly dark activity. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, the struggle of the church at the time was not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the same powers and authorities are still at work in our day today. In the one hand, we hold these words of truth and light And in the side of our eyes, we see the darkness in the world around us. The soul-enticing materialism of Northumberland Street here in Newcastle. The bank account-filling promises of our career that just call us to it. The draw to just an online community and forgetting friends in flesh and blood. Because it's more convenient and easy just to do friendship at a distance. But we know these are shadows, counterfeits of the goodness in which God has created these things. When we see these words on our page and we see the darkness out there in the world, in the face of these big corporations and institutions, we think, what can our little church do? Can the gospel make a difference? Absolutely it can. God is more powerful than anything that we may face or anything that we may see. Climate change is an important issue like we started with. That headline, it's our final hope. But God is not Greta Thunberg. My hope is in Jesus Christ. I think these are important issues and we should give them our full attention. But we have a greater hope to which we've been called. And the light of Christ is more powerful over all things in all of creation. And we have a great inheritance that waits us. And when confronted, not just in the darkness in the world in which we see, but in me, I need to know with whom I belong. I'm a child of God. The glorious Father has chosen me. He's chosen you. He's adopted us and sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And he has given us such a certain hope. And he's given us his power to us who believe. Nothing compare to the power of God. So this second lie, you are hopeless, which we sometimes may feel individually or as a church. In Christ, you are empowered. And we're going to pray now and respond to these verses. And we're going to receive communion together. And so with that in mind, what do we need to ask God's help with this afternoon? Well, it can be anything really. He is our glorious Father and we can approach him as such. Whatever you want to ask God for today, you can. 
But however, let's remember these three prayers of Paul in the letter to Ephesians and I'll let that guide our response this week. A prayer to know him better, to know his hope by which we've been called and to know his power, which is for us who believe. Ben's gonna lead us in communion now.